0: This is Ryan Hill, Manager of Interpretive Programs and Curatorial Research Associate for the Hirshhorn Museum, and I'm speaking to curator Ann Elgood today about her exhibit, The Uncertainty of Objects and Ideas. We'll be discussing a few of the objects in this exhibit.
1: The way that I tend to like to work is um, to start with the artwork, uh-huh. but I think there are more than two, but two yeah. general ways to approach um, curatorial practice, where you you start with you know an idea and you, you go looking for artists, or you or you start yeah. more with the art. So I knew I wanted to do a show about sculpture, uh-huh. and that was from um, just a very you know personal preoccupation with it and and wanting to explore that more, mm-hmm. thinking well what is it about sculpture that I feel is very provocative to me right now, what, what is it that the sculptural work has mm-hmm. to do. But the, the list of artists that I was interested in, more generally speaking, mm-hmm. was rather large. Right. So then I started thinking about which of the artists on that larger list um, was I really you know, almost obsessed with on right. some level. Uh-huh. And then, once I started looking at their work more closely, I started to see those connections. You know, say, between Issa, who is a really great starting point for the show, as is Charles Long. Uh Those were two artists who, um, you know, for Charles, because he'd been making work that was quite different, when I saw this newer work, the work that he's been making the last four Uh years or so, I was really struck by it, and it just stuck with me. And on Issa, also, when I saw her work at David Zorner, um i just was really moved by it and i started to just think about what it was that these artists were doing that i felt was um shared and then you know really started to get more at the concept of the show that way and i knew i wanted to keep the exhibition to a relatively small number of artists that's that was very important to me and i think when you do a group show part of the challenge and the opportunity is to not only endeavor to put some artists together, but to actually think critically about group shows and how, um, how they can work better and mm-hmm. how they can have particular problems. So I like the format of keeping the number of artists relatively small and presenting each artist in a fairly substantial way. Because I think that it allows viewers to understand any individual artist's work in a much more um, complicated way, um, and also, so in a way, you know, it's better for the artist; it, it presents them better. But it also, I think, if if you have too many artists around an idea, it tends to make the works feel slightly illustrative of a concept rather than the notion that the work, that the idea in the show, is really coming out of the work. I think with this amount of work you can make that argument, you can visually make that argument.
0: No, I think that really does work because they're all really diverse and they still have their uniqueness. But then something about the materials or something about there's a thread that seems to all connect them. Mm -hmm. So it also, I think that's what's interesting is this idea of uncertainties comes up because you feel this connection. You can't explain what it is because Mm -hmm. they're all so diverse. So it's a really interesting thing. It's interesting how that works. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a funny concept to start a show with, isn't it? Uncertainty.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I also think that it's daring because to say it's okay to be uncertain when you look at the work as an invitation to say that these people are exploring something and you can explore it with them. And I think, especially with contemporary work, to say, we're certain about what's happening right now, is really, you can't. Yeah, you
1: have no retrospective view. Yeah. (laughs) And also, I mean, the, the way I think of uncertainty in the exhibition, there are different ways that I think it functions, but two important ones are <clears throat> um, that something you just touched upon, which is that there are many interpretations available to the works, even any given element in a piece. We're staring at Issa Genzken right now, right. and you see this turtle. Right. Well, the turtle can be you know many different things to many different people so right away you start to bring in your own associations and and to connect those to other elements in the piece and i think that these artists very deliberately keep their work open in that way Mm -hmm. so um the uncertainty has to do with denying the certainty of a single meaning Mm -hmm. or a single interpretation but i also think that uncertainty reflects um a kind of cultural zeitgeist Mm -hmm. um or a sense that we have, I think, as a culture and as a world right now, mm-hmm. that, that, that our world does feel very uncertain in many ways. There's a lot of um, awareness of how in flux things are, just naturally, which I think is reflected in the work very much, but also that this is a pr- particularly strife political moment. Yeah. There's a lot of the certainties that we thought um, about the world for different periods of our history that that are kind right. of upended right now and questioned so so I think it well creates a platform and you were you use the word dialogue and yeah. that's a really great word because I think all of this work encourages dialogue and right. even debate right and I think that as an institution that's part of our role, is to be a platform for that kind of dialogue to happen. Uh Not only when we organize public programs and we sit around and talk about the work, but also the experience that we can encourage where a person stands in front of an artwork and even has an internal dialogue um, or talks to their friend or whoever they're here with.
0: And I think that's the hardest thing for people because I, I work with the visitor a lot. And one of the things that I notice is that people will often, you know, they still have a little bit of. I think some people. I'm not saying all, but some people will often have the feeling that that culture is kind of like medicine. They're supposed to just like take it and not question it. Mm. And I think the this idea, is good for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that the idea is that um, that no, you can not only question it, but that your meaning can be on an equal par to other meanings. Yeah. You know? But as a curator, I mean, that's a hard thing position to be in because in some ways you're still having to. Um, you have a certain amount of professionalism in your field, right? So you have to kind of say, well, I am certain about some things.
1: Well, it's been interesting, the kind of interpretive process with this work, because um, I've described this before, that I, in writing the catalog text, I had these funny moments of, um, I've described them as sort of existential angst, which is far too strong, but it gives you kind of the sense of it, which was, in writing down and putting into words, which of course has, is limited anyway. Mm -hmm. Words never Mm -hmm. seem to quite be able to express adequately the visual, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Not only the visual, but the emotion of this work. Mm -hmm. And so when I was writing my catalog, there were moments when I thought, I can't do this. You know, I Mm -hmm. can't put this down in writing and and have it as this, you know, kind of finalized interpretation of this work. And I felt somehow like I was, doing an injustice to the work on some level. On the other hand, it's really fun to talk about mm-hmm. and it's really fun to write about. And I think hopefully what what comes across in the in the writing is is the very fact that, you know, I have even multiple interpretations mm-hmm. of every artist and that, that and that they're more much beyond that. I mean Issa's is a good example of something where you walk up and you go oh okay well yeah. I recognize stuff you know right. there's there's a landscape reference there's flowers there's a turtle there's a ladder um, and immediately you're given things to work with you know a doll figurine
0: and it's oh, and, you think, and at least when I look at it I think oh it's so pretty you know
1: yeah the and colors it, the are colors, really seductive but then you start to think the right. weight. yeah I'm, I'm being given all these recognizable These objects I may even have in my home, they're Mm -hmm. certainly, you know, um, domestic in some essence. Um, but but then, what is it, you know, the question of what does it mean, what is she saying, why is she doing this, What what's the relationship between these things?
0: And there's a figurine here that seems beheaded. to have lost <laughs> its head, and that <laughs> seems to be having these kind of, uh, those sort of look like air traffic signals to me, He's you know, got how they signal planes in. <laughs> um, With his
1: little uh, plastic lollipop? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it starts to get weirder and harder to interpret, and a little bit, the 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 BEAUTY AND THE COLOR OF IT BECOMES COMPLICATED BY THE FACT THAT SOME OF THE GESTURES ARE A LITTLE BIT VIOLENT. Mm -hmm. Um, THE SPLATTERING OF THE PAINT, uh, OFTEN MANY OF THE OBJECTS IN ISA'S WORKS ARE NOT um, UPRIGHT. THEY'RE OFTEN UPENDED IN SOME WAY Mm -hmm. OR or PUT ON THEIR HEAD. AND SO, AND YET THEY'RE ALL CONTAINED ON on THE TOP OF THIS PEDESTAL. SO THERE'S A, I THINK, A REALLY NICE BALANCE IN THIS WORK and, AND SEVERAL OTHERS BETWEEN these very formal, articulated pieces in which um, those formal considerations that happen in making are very apparent, and yet there seems to also be a level of spontaneity and and a kind of unconscious place that the artist can go to.
0: And I think the color, too, is interesting. For me, the color seems to be... I seem to think of um, signals and caution. Yeah, a
1: lot of bright red and orange. The silver is something she's been using a lot, and I love it.
0: It's kind of for me the association I have with silver is that it can be something that could be made expensive, exactly. It's silver, but it's also kind of toxic, like um, you know, you know. Like the
1: metallic.
0: To, yeah, like mercury or lead. Like you're not supposed to touch it. <laughs> right.
1: Well, and also with these figures, and the one mm. we're looking at now, it's two elephants, um, which I have. A, I love this piece because I have yes. a thing about elephants. She's I adore got elephants them. Some
0: of the other yeah, ones too. Yeah,
1: actually, the one we acquired the, mm-hmm. has a little ceramic elephant, the untitled one, yeah. but. Um, Yeah, I think the the silver surface on these, as figurines, suggests something precious Mm -hmm. in a way, but then you realize it's really just a surface treatment, and Mm -hmm. it's painted in a way that leaves a bit of dripping, Mm -hmm. it's kind of incomplete, not very carefully done, and then there's some black spray paint at the Mm -hmm. bottom, and and, and so that preciousness gets undermined by other decisions that she's made.
0: And the extra questions that come up from visitors are things along the line of, um, that come up with a couple of them, which is, how planned are these and, uh-huh. and how fast is she working? Because I think mm-hmm. people want to figure out, because there is an enormous amount of spontaneity and mm-hmm. there's a sense of a kind of upheaval, which is, I think, I think she's really prolific, right?
1: She's very prolific, yeah. So
0: I think there's a sense of that. a
1: have that She at
0: continuously it. produces Interesting, both. yeah. But, um, but I, I'm wondering if, if people do want to know about that because I, I think it assures them somehow.
1: Well, you know, I, I couldn't, Tell you yeah. how long any individual piece takes because I don't know the but answer to that. But
0: are there sketches and plans, or is it just really kind of? Uh, I've never through.
1: seen sketches. Uh-huh. She she works in groups,
0: <clears throat> okay.
1: and she works a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, she spends a lot of time in the studio, and I think when she's in the studio, she's my sense is that she's very. Almost obsessed. She's Mm -hmm. in there all the time, Mm -hmm. and she's working on a group of of sculptures. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether she kind of works on one, finishes it, and moves on to the next Mm -hmm. one. My assumption would be that she's working on them um, on multiple pieces at once. Mm -hmm. And I think when you know which pieces are these first two, Mm -hmm. and then that excuse me, that fourth one are from the same moment. I think you start to see certain. Formal decisions right, right. and and subject matter that that get that are that exist in all of them. So I think there's probably there's quite a bit of back and forth mm-hmm. um, and a dialogue happening for her, like the like on this one, the use of the photograph in the back,
0: uh-huh.
1: which seems to be um, a, a setup of objects that are then mimicked in the piece itself, sculpturally, mm-hmm. that she's set up right. in the studio or something, and then taking a photograph of it, blown that up used it as a backdrop on the screen element and then ripped into it. On the other one, it's a a photo of her studio Mm. that she's dripped with paint and then wrapped around the pedestal to act as, um, to become part of the pedestal. And so that that photography, Mm. using photography in the work, exists in both of these, and um, I think that relationship of the two-dimensional onto the three-dimensional mm-hmm. is something that she's done, you know, in other works, too, and is something that she's interested in.
0: It, for me, it creates, like, this theatrical quality because mm-hmm. it's almost like a backdrop that allows you a setting for her characters a little bit. Yeah. And the earlier, the one we were looking at at the beginning has kind of a, um, a still-life quality, but these seem to be, they, they hint at being narrative but at the same time they let you know like she rips the photographs or she's dripping things or mm-hmm. she pastes them together so they let you know it's you know it, you're not really there it's mm-hmm. just you know an illusion so yeah it's a this very, has a very uh,
1: uh, an illusionary aspect does this do does her work feel really personal to you
0: you i don't know i have, i'm not I, I personally am having having such strong of my own strong reactions to it I can't imagine what's going on with her but I do see like there's children and there's like domestic um, you know objects and I can kind of imagine what that's about but it what it really reminds me of is if there's a if there's a crisis whether there's a crisis like in the domestic setting or outside of it it they influence each other mm-hmm. that's what it makes me think yeah about,
1: that, that's a really really that,
0: nice yeah because Thanks. I feel like there's, it's like I either when I look at these, this is going to sound crazy, but when I look at these, I hear air raid sirens. That's oh wow! I, so they feel urgent. They in feel that, kind right? of urgent, uh-huh. like there's some kind of crisis. But then there's all these children doing it, uh-huh. and so you think, oh well, maybe they're just playing.
1: The children are strangely, um, <laughs> they're they're strangely in danger, but somehow powerful. Yeah.
0: Now you tell know? me about that. How. Well, they, I well mean, this one certainly feels powerful, and this is kind of amazing how there's <laughs> this weird mirrored thing that happens <laughs> on the side. It's so
1: great. The so there's this chair that this divides the top of the of the piece, and then the, the baby doll is yeah. behind it and, and looking through the screen. And, and then he's got his hand in a jar, right. like a sort of vase. Uh, the colors on this are so fantastic, yeah. too. Um, but, yeah, I mean, doesn't he look... You know, kind of trapped, but also somehow in charge. I mean, even just the gesture of putting the hand in the yeah. base is so good.
0: I think to me it's like um, they've gotten on top of the pedestal, so there is this kind of... <laughs> yeah, a, they're, where they're not supposed to be. Yeah they're, yeah, they're not supposed to be on top of the pedestal. <laughs> Another thing to me is... Um, that they must you know they have physical agility so they're able to balance and do things. So there is that kind of aspect yeah. which is they have the skill of the acrobat or something that you kind of think of as being, you know, strong and amazing. But at the same and it is so it's this precariousness. And I, I actually see that through a lot of units in here. Yeah. It's this precarious Absolutely. thing. I guess for me there is a part of you that kinda of wants to figure out what this work is about because it's like what are these artists telling us about our own time period mm-hmm. um, or how they're at least feeling in it. You know? mm-hmm. Um,
1: well somehow that precariousness is balanced by the fact that indeed they all do stand upright mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. none of this work requires uh, any kind of support in order yeah. to, s- to stand upright they don't mm-hmm. you know they're not tethered to the floor or they're not um, you know sort of held in place from above mm-hmm. they really all very deliberately make freestanding objects yeah. and that that quality of autonomy mm-hmm. is is very deliberate and important in the work, and and yet there's still this precariousness. So, I think making us aware mm-hmm. that those two things are kind of mm-hmm. part of a whole, and that I think a- Andrea has said this about her work, Andrea Cohen, mm-hmm. um, that you you have this awareness that it could go either way. Mm-hmm. It, the thing could keep growing in a sense, mm-hmm. you could see more objects piled mm-hmm. on top of these as, works, or you could see it topple over and fall to the ground. Mm -hmm. And both of those are are real possibilities. um, And finding that moment of equilibrium Mm. that gets presented to us Mm. in the form of the sculpture. I think there's also a bit of a play, um, you know, suggesting this precariousness, but also these, these are people who make objects in a very conscious and deliberate way.
0: as I was looking at the Franz West, I was thinking... Do you want to walk down there? Yeah, but I was thinking, here are two very different approaches to sculpture, uh-huh. you know, which have... Conf- which somehow go together. Yeah, they're psychological. Yeah,
1: very psychological. But
0: at the same time, two very different ways of approaching it.
1: Well, I think also the, the difference between the suggestion of something being um, in decay or, or precarious in, in scatter art yeah. is also... has a different relationship to space and to the gallery Mm. and these artists are also very committed to the notion of creating an an independent object Mm -hmm. an autonomous object and that these things go in the gallery they have a relationship to architecture but it's not the same relationship to architecture that a lot of um, work that's even described as sculpture now has that Mm -hmm. is more installation-oriented, that is more about an immersive environment, that invites the visitor to enter into a space. Mm -hmm. This work invites the visitor to exist in the space with it, Mm -hmm. almost like another body, Mm -hmm. and it invites the visitor to walk around. Mm -hmm. All of this work um, really can't be understood from one perspective. Mm -hmm. So, of course, in Mm -hmm. that way, it's very sculptural. It's different than painting, but it's also. Um, I think it's work that really shifts depending on where where you're standing. Yeah,
0: and it, with <laughs> Isa's work, it shifts also, but it shifts for me in a narrative way. And and with Franz's work, it is more on a bodily level and not yeah. on like a, a, a. I keep saying theater with her work, but. Um, well, you know, know, theatrical
1: the or... is a word that's come up a few times, and I, f- I find it really interesting. Uh-huh. In part, of course, because, um, you know, Fried criticized minimalism for its theatricality, oh, okay. but this is obviously far from being minimalism, so it's not the same no, discussion. No, no. But I think theatrical is a word that um, <clears throat> has a lot of interesting connotations for people, not only because I think it, it says something about a quality of narrative. Mm-hmm that can exist in sculpture, even very, f- even formal sculpture and abstract sculpture. We're looking at abstraction, essentially, mm. and thinking of it as having a narrative quality. But also because theatricality suggests a kind of energy, I think, mm. um, or psychology, like you right. said before. And that that's very evident.
0: And but if, if they're using everyday, some of these are using everyday objects. There's nothing everyday about them. I feel that one of the things that I'm noticing visitors' involvement is that they are transported, mm-hmm. and the, when they, some, I can't say that about all of them, I hate to, to say that about all of them, can generalize. but generalize. Yeah, generalize.
1: <laughs> I understand. Thank you for
0: generalizing. <laughs> But, I mean, with the, with uh, this work here, I mean, the fact that I can see a newspaper yeah. is interesting, and, and for me it ties again to Issa's work in a funny way, because I am having a sense of something that exists. that connects me to the outside world again right but and
1: and I think that's really important f- for Franz
0: yeah.
1: he wants the work to um, in a way be a part of the everyday mm-hmm. that it's not separate from it that mm-hmm. even though you're in a museum <coughs> it conjures up your life and, yeah. and, and reality um, I want to go back to something you oh, said because okay. I was really struck by it that, that you know that the different perspectives on Issa makes you think of narrative but but with Franz, it has more to do with the body, right?
0: Yeah, and I, I, I feel like with Thumb, with actually Rachel's work, too. Uh-huh. I, like some of them, I go into a store mode, and other ones, I seem to they seem to be kind of having a bodily presence. Uh-huh. So sometimes they seem to dissolve, and sometimes they seem to actually be present. That's very weird. Right?
1: Franz's, for you, <laughs> do you have a sense of both the outer skin of the body and the interior? Like uh-huh. becoming being somehow made visible, or do you think of it that way? I'm just curious because these these objects, I mean, the shift in surface yeah. treatment is very interesting. Uh-huh. The raw paper mache and then the painted elements, the different kinds of paint that, that's used. Yeah. And the fact that, in fact, they are hollow. So we know they don't have an inside, right. and it's almost like that inside is somehow on the outside.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Um, well, there's a couple things, because if these are Sisyphus series, it makes me think about that this is something that keeps rolling, <laughs> yeah. and it rolls into stuff, and like yeah. a shoe, it picks stuff up off the ground. Uh,
1: totally, yeah.
0: Like, or like snowballs. So it's all a little like a snowball. But but then what you're saying to me is that this could also be something that it's it's spit up outside of itself, you know? Yeah. But the paint has an activated quality, too, you know, so I would say, but this this one, Looks more like something that would be stuck to a shoe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think I like that description, and you know, Sisyphus, of course, was the the Greek mythological figure who had to push the rock up the right. hill repeatedly. Right. Um, so here, you you know, when you look at this, what I love is in the title, Franz is giving us a narrative uh-huh. to start with, and. And then we have this form that, that is rock-like on some level. So maybe this is the rock that Sisyphus used. Mm-hmm. But it's also so figurative and bodily in some way, or biomorphic, I guess mm-hmm. is the best way to describe it. And so then you think, no, what I've got is, is the actual figure of Sisyphus. Um, and I think just as a, as a story, it's an interesting starting place because we, I think at least um, many people associate that myth with a, a quality of futility, the act of doing over and over again the same thing and kind of ending up in the same place but i think that franz thinks of it in a much more positive way in the sense that artists are always going to make things Mm -hmm. and in a way they're always engaged in that same activity that rolling the stone up the hill Mm -hmm. but that in that that act of making um there's always something new there's always something to learn there's always something um interesting that, that gets revealed literally in the act of doing the physical exertion of it.
0: And that's what's interesting to me is when you're, you're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking that you're, you're talking about the meaning of the work, but you can't separate the meaning of the work from how it's made, and that's fascinating yeah. to me. So it's almost as if the, the way that he shows the accumulation of the materials and the layer of the materials, you get a sense that because it was done over time, that accumulation and that layering is part of its very like, it's it's part of the experience of the work. Absolutely. Um, that the, that somehow this... How do you say that? Somehow this object has actually has life experience on it, has mm-hmm. gone through all these different layers of being worked on, but it also kind of makes you think, if you identify with it, I guess, you would think that it actually has its own history.
1: Yeah, that that's a, that's really interesting. And, and then you, you, it makes you wonder, how does Franz know when this piece is done? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I feel that way with a lot of the artists, right. you know, that, that it could be unfinished. It suggests the quality of being unfinished and that, that the unfinished is, in, is indeed finished, um, that they're willing to present work that has mm. the possibility of an incompleteness mm-hmm. uh, to, to, I think, underscore that very quality of process that's so visible in the materials. Um, certainly, the way that Franz paints things, y- you feel like he he could still be doing it, right. still be working on it. Maybe another color could be added. And in a way, it's a it's a very generous way to present work because you almost, as a viewer, feel like you too could add something to it. Yeah, because you know? for
0: instance, this layer of, of of newspaper could be another layer of papier-mâché to build the form, and then more paint goes on top of that, right. but he's left that bare, just exactly. kind of like how the palette is used. He uses these palettes, and those palettes were partly, they were his decision to be used, but you have the choice to stack them in certain ways. Yeah,
1: so what happened was, and Franz has a long history of creating really interesting pedestals for sculpture, and I think with both Isa and Franz, they make a very deliberate, choice to still use the pedestal which seems to be a, a nod to modernism on some level or even a classic more classic sculpture uh, as the mode of presenting sculpture but they they change it up and do something um, unusual and very personal and idiosyncratic so Franz has used things that are actual objects and ha- tend to be things that have a utilitarian Mm -hmm. um, position. Mm -hmm. So he's done things like made pedestals as cupboards, and guards in the museum were allowed to put their things into them. So they kind of had this double function as acting as a pedestal and acting as a, you know, a a storing unit for guards' stuff. Um, In this case, it's it's the pallets. And what happened is that Caiaphas and Kepler, this piece right here, that had actually been exhibited on palettes before, uh-huh. and so when we were talking with Franz about the selection of works and how to present them, he suggested that we that we use palettes for all of the works to create a kind of visual yeah. link between them, even though they come from, except for the two Sisyphus that are from a series, uh-huh. uh, which actually has ten in total, and we have two here. The other two works, they're all from different times, and they're not necessarily related. Uh-huh. So that that was a way to link them, but then he said, You know, you decide how many pallets to stack up, and how you want to position them, and what angle they're at. But I love that the pallet is part of the infrastructure of the museum. It's the thing that we use to bring the objects into the museum, and then we usually discard them. And they're, you know, they're dirty, and And they're for shipping, and they're for movement.
0: And they're also the part of the museum that the visitor usually doesn't get to see. Right. And so they're kind of very humble that way. They're, it's not, you know, they're the thing that's not art, like the crates. Exactly.
1: And yet exactly. there's someone who
0: makes them and there's someone who uses them that is part of that process of, of bringing art into the museum.
1: Yeah, and it has this wonderful, wonderful suggestion of movement mm-hmm. that we could move the sculptures around if we felt like it. Yeah. That they're not, you know, there's the, the permanence is something that, uh, isn't so important.
0: In the case of this particular
1: Rachel Harrison we're looking at, Shelley Winter, there's wood in it. It happens to be an Ikea table, so that's a little different than what you might expect, but wood is obviously a very common material. Plaster, paper mache, um, even, you know, metal in some cases. And then a lot of these other unusual materials, those tend to be found objects, um, in some cases trash or detritus, and in a lot of cases, um, commodities, actual things that you would purchase. So we just talked about that with Issa's work. Rachel is a really great example of somebody who incorporates both of those things in every single work on some level. So there's really the sculptural part that is very handmade, at times very elaborate, Uh, made with wood, pieces of styrofoam and um, scraps of wood sometimes that are covered in a kind of cement, This, this material that she uses in most of her work, a kind of cement material that becomes a surface that she can make either biomorphic or more architectronic or angular. And then she paints those elements. And then those are juxtaposed to objects. So we're looking at pretty discrete, right? And
0: and it's a little bit of of the, actually we can't see the two arts we've been looking at, but it combines those. Yeah, it combines found materials.
1: Yeah, with the sculptural, the sculptural objects. objects. So this one, I mean, I love this piece. It's so it's so interesting. It's just got a lot going on, and it's got this really elaborate. Um, assembled wooden structure that seems to me to be a reference to David Smith yeah, or, or other artists who w- were welding pieces together to create a kind of meandering um, assembly of different shapes and forms. So Rachel's done it here was scraps from a carpenter's shop that um, she just literally like pulled out of the dumpster outside of the carpentry house which is in her neighborhood in Brooklyn. And so that becomes this really elaborate structure upon which these other art- objects are housed. And one of those objects is this really large sculptural element that's a big pink um, angular assemblage of things. Mm-hmm. And in a funny way, I think of the, the David Smith wood part as, as really the apparatus um, or the display mechanism for the big pink. Object, mm. and then the two found commodities that she's used. One, one being in this um, All Star Wrestler figure, and then one being um, a can of Country Kettle uh, air
0: freshener. Country Kettle, and I don't, I'm trying to figure out what that smells like. Country oh, Kettle. Oh right. really I. Right?
1: And you know, <laughs> yeah. on the other side.
0: What's happening for me? Because if you if you think about David Smith, I think that's just a French.
1: Yeah, well, I love that it's English and French, and, French.
0: and it's on two sides of the.
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> I think she. Yeah, I, I mean, what, to me, what, when, you, when you think about David Smith, you think about you know kind of like the working class hero, mm-hmm. the person who kind of welds, and, and a
1: you know, very American artist, and
0: very and very kind of male, mm-hmm. very, you know, And I think what she's doing is like for me. The, Pink area it's very cake frosting, to me. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah.
0: And then also with the with the wizard, so there's there's just a real sense of kind of feminizing the mm-hmm. work. And I think we we have talked about that there are issues about gender in her work too. Absolutely. And I think so that the humor of it, uh, humor, there's humor that comes in.
1: A lot of humor, yeah.
0: I I have to say, people, I think when they're in this. Visitors in the newsroom, sort of what I've gotten the sense is they understand that there's humor here. Yeah. But I think somewhat, sometimes they don't understand the humor in some of the other works too. Uh huh. And I think if you don't understand the humor, then you and you take some of that, some of it face value, and then it's not an irony, but it's just yeah. a kind of um, a pleasure that we, you know, that, that that things can be made and you can have. Well,
1: that they're serious the, but pleasurable. Yeah, yeah. I
0: think that that's, that's, again, maybe what makes people feel uncertain. Yeah. Which is that they they think, well, we're in an art museum, and it should be serious, and this is like new art, and it's telling us something about ourselves, but like, is it laughing at us? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what's happening? Yeah, you know, yeah. So some funny things start to happen, but I think with her work, it kind of comes together so that you do, you, there is a sense of the kind of the surprise, and and that surprise makes it like a joke. Well,
1: the surprise is really fun because it it (laughs) often has to do with um, a kind of obfuscation of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, in this piece, you may not even notice the the can of Country Wizard Mm -hmm. um, air freshener. You have to to really look for little moments. Um, And in other works, and we've talked about this before, um, but like with Cindy, There's there's the the way in which you you walk into the gallery and there's this wall mm-hmm. and then you have to go around the wall to find the rest of the sculpture on the other side and you know when you walk in you see a little bit of it peeking mm-hmm. up from the top and it's very alluring you want to find out what's going on it could
0: even be a real person because you yeah. can't really see a face
1: yeah because of the wig.
0: and but you're and, oh I just noticed the same green it was being used in the signage for hey check checking out. <laughs> <That's pretty laughs>
1: Now I know where that color came from. I couldn't figure it out. (laughs) No, we really didn't ever associate it with that deliberately.
0: We this, like them. this thing is, it's called Cindy, but I've been looking at the name of the wig, which is that it's the Peggy Sue wig. Yes. So even the Cindy has an alternate identity as well. Yes. Sue.
1: Well, and, and interestingly, <laughs> and the reason that, you know, you know it's the Peggy Sue wig is that the label is still left on. <laughs> and um, Rachel does that a lot. On the commodities that she uses in the work, usually a label, a price tag, none of that stuff is removed. Right. Um, so it really references that way that, you know, um... Commodities function for us, but the the double kind of name mm-hmm. quality I think is yeah. really important because one of the Cindys, and I'm sure there are others, but one that she's referencing here is is Cindy Sherman, who indeed herself her work is based in masquerade. Right. So you know, Cindy dressed up as Peggy Sue, or vice versa. You know, okay. you could go back and forth.
0: And also I think by showing the price tag on these things you know, she's also dealing with class in a funny way mm-hmm. because when you come into a gallery or a museum, especially in the art world, it's like you really shouldn't be talking about price. Mm-hmm. And especially if it's piece of artwork, <laughs> yes. you know. Especially in a museum. Yeah, this then, is you know, no gallery. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, just saying generally. Yeah. To talk about price and to see that the price is much cheaper than perhaps it's being purchased for <laughs> important.
1: One important thing is that, of course... it's only the commodities that would have any kind of price tag on them. Then there's this whole other aspect of the work which is which is the handmade part, the part that we would consider more you know, the sculptural creation of the artist. Um, And so juxtaposing those together just underscores, of course, the difference between those things. The things that we got in the world that are reproduced, um, you know, available widely are relatively inexpensive, cheap, um, those getting incorporated into a sculpture. So, you know, with Rachel, there's always this back and forth and kind of, you know, jumping between things that seem to be at odds with one another, but somehow in the work get incorporated into something that feels complete and that really has a relationship. I think also, you know, the commodities, for Rachel and other artists in the show are very direct references to reality. So, in a way, I would counter what you just said by saying that they're, they are suggesting that the realities of our lives are in fact um, material that's, that's valuable to include into, into, into art.
0: Well, the commodities are smaller in terms of how much, and it's like they're always within the larger works that are being created by her. So it's uh-huh,
1: interesting; uh-huh. they
0: really are kind of minuscule in terms of the power of it. They kind of traverse through it, but like, with all of these, I feel like the sculptures, the the work that she's the work that she's doing is much larger than. Mm-hmm.
1: than, than, than the well, and also were. the the commodities, the objects are representational, mm-hmm. whereas the sculptures are abstract. Right. So that's another kind of dialogue or dialectic that she's setting up, repeatedly, and so you you constantly go back and forth between this thing that's abstract that you want to kind of try to interpret, make associations with, and then these things that are you know really at face value they are what they are.
0: And, and we had talked, and I think at one point something had come up about these as being kind of elaborate. You could think about them as elaborate frames or yeah, or
1: displays. But I'm
0: actually now I'm thinking. That, it actually is something a little different, which is the way that she's displaying these objects changes their meaning. Uh-huh. And, um, the, and that, the, the commodities? Well, yeah, the, the commodities. The way she's, 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 she changes their meaning by displaying them in different sorts of ways, uh-huh. and has you think about them more complexly because of that. Absolutely. And so that's what is kind of really fascinating about, about, about it. But if a person coming off the street, and just going back to what I said before, it's, it's this idea of multiple meanings. You can look at one little part of it and, and go off on it, mm-hmm. but all of these artists are challenging you to look at the whole, the bigger picture, everything yeah. in it. That the
1: parts are part of a whole, right. and you can't really separate them.
0: Right. And I think sometimes people might fixate on the things they recognize from everyday life uh-huh. in a museum environment, um, and, and that to see them in this new environment, I think, is, that's kind of where the ready-made comes into. Yeah. Well, and
1: the ready-made is is a, you know, Duchamp is a a really important inspiration Mm -hmm. for Rachel, in part thinking about the Mm -hmm. ready-made. And if you think of her sculptures as elaborate displays for objects, Mm -hmm. then it pushes the ready-made into a different realm, you know, that that it's not just taking um, the urinal and putting it on the wall, it's creating a whole elaborate thing upon which to put these things, Um, And that, we we talked about in Cindy, and it's also true in Pretty Discreet, that there's a reference, or or in the case of Cindy, an inclusion of a wall Mm -hmm. in the work. So again, it's thinking about what's the function of the wall when we think about art. It's usually the the site upon which an artwork is viewed, Mm -hmm. right? We don't usually associate it with sculpture. Sculpture is usually away from the wall, independent of the wall, and so that's a, you know, that's a lot to talk about right there. But also, in her titles, I think you think about Duchamp. Pretty discreet, seems to have the quality of a pun.
0: Right. Um, And even uh, the figure which is named uh, (laughs) Big John Stud is interesting because these are actually all studs studs that that are in the work. And he's kind of holding it together, or he could be slipping off.
1: He's slipping or he's climbing or, do, you know? <laughs>
0: it reminds me of the, uh, the gladiator, what is it, the, the gladiator, the champion gladiators they used to have those big all-star courses. I don't know, it was, like, it was an all Well, course.
1: and all-star wrestling is huge yeah, phenomena, right. um, and I'm afraid I don't follow it closely, but I think Big John Stud must be an actual, yeah. you know, uh, athlete who has some amount of recognition because he has his own doll. Right. <laughs> Well, the process of working with the artists to make their collection in context galleries was so much fun. In part because I don't know a better way than to spend the day in storage with an artist, yeah. just pulling things off the shelf and looking, and just it was amazing. But
0: how did she? How did she or the artists that you worked with look at things differently than maybe you would?
1: Well. Um, the process was interesting because we uh, we sent them a bunch of materials, catalogs that we have of the collection, which are not, you know, all-inclusive or comprehensive. Um, we encouraged them to go to our website and really do research there. So by the time they came to the museum to go into storage, they already had a number of works they knew they wanted to see. Our sculpture storage is this really wonderful setup, because, except for the very large-scale things, which have to be stored in another place, um, everything is in there, and, it, and it's not crated. Mm-hmm. So we have shelves and shelves and shelves of objects. Like so we were, we were there looking for certain things that they wanted to see, but they were also free to roam and, and look at, you know, anything that kind of struck them. So I would say that, you know, they came into it Especially Charles and Evan, with a number of kind of lesser-known artists on their list that they wanted to see. Mm-hmm. So that was that was kind of a starting place for them. There were periods of time they were interested in. Um, Charles's work tends to be from the 50s on. Most everything in Evan's gallery is from the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel's is a little more, there's more of a range, and she leaned towards some contemporary work, Mm -hmm. which the others didn't so much. Um, Although, you know, Gober, I guess, would be the most recent piece in here, so it's Mm -hmm. nothing super duper new. Um, But I think just what I was really struck by was how I understood more about their practice Mm -hmm. and the way they make things and the interests they have and preoccupations they have in sculpture by the choices they made for their collection galleries. And I think it's wonderful to see that. I mean, yeah. let's, well, we'll start here. What we're looking at is um, the Domier figures, or some of them are attributed to Domier. We're not sure if Domier actually made them or not. Um, little um, figures that are staring at um, a small John Chamberlain.
0: Yeah, I've never seen one so small.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. They almost feel like maquettes for the larger yeah, pieces. Really but I love this, this Chamberlain. It's yeah. a really interesting one with a lot of different lines and the colors are yeah. really wonderful. And they're and all
0: kind of just almost silhouettes. You know, not silhouettes, but they're just one color.
1: Right, so the so bronze figures are all, you know, that pati- that dark patina. Right. And they're all, you know, they're they're society figures, so there's are things like um, the strolling bourgeois, which is such a great title, Um, the poet, the visitor, the lover. I mean, they're all figures from 19th century France uh that Daumier is um, representing and also somehow satirically mocking, right? Uh And they have wonderful expressions and and stances. Uh And Rachel has very cleverly, but also in a very serious way, positioned them so that they're looking at the Chamberlain, Right. right?
0: So we're kind of, she's kind of replicating on a smaller scale what we just did, which was we were in front of works trying to figure them out, and now she's got...
1: She's got these guys trying to figure out this work that comes from the next century. They're looking into the future, right?
0: It's a very interesting statement, in a way, because it's kind of... In some ways, putting parentheses around what's happening now. Yeah. People are looking at this work and trying and to think about, thinking
1: of what happens yeah. later.
0: There's this person with the broom here, though, that seems to be looking like, oh, away. <laughs> they just work here; they don't care.
1: Yeah, it's he's kind of, indifferent.
0: Yeah.
1: And <laughs> um, but <I> mean, also.
0: <laughs> that's pretty funny.
1: But I think you know, and then you look at Rachel's work that's all about looking
0: you know it's about
1: how do we look how do we experience art what happens when we walk into a gallery is it on the wall is it in the floor is you know what's the relationship between the different elements the display um critique that happens in her work is completely apparent in the way that she set up these these objects
0: and it's funny because when i had first heard you talk about it being all about looking and i kind of was like Oh, what's that mean, all about looking? Because mm-hmm. you know, I look all the time and I see what I see. Right? <laughs> but, um, but it really is. There's a constant framing and reframing. And, and uh, in terms of her sculpture, it, it's sculpture, but it is doing something else. It is also, in some ways, steering our look mm-hmm. even into the room and into other rooms in some interesting yeah. sorts of ways. Well, in that, yeah. that
1: way, you know, the way... One thing she's done a really beautiful thing here. Really smart.
0: And so they place, they place.
1: Yeah, where the objects are was completely their choice. Uh I mean, we worked together mostly just because I wanted to to hang around with them while they were doing it. But we had some really great conversations. And um, but you know, we really gave them pretty much total freedom to choose the objects, to do the installation, to think about um, the design for the galleries. And we, you know, we helped and made suggestions around design. Decisions like Mm -hmm. platforms and pedestals and wall colors and labels and stuff like that, but um, Rachel's done this totally brilliant gesture where she's put this really lovely Louise Nevelson piece that we have called Standing Figure, which is from the 1950s, and we have a lot of Nevelson in the collection Mm -hmm. um, Who's an an artist that I'm really interested in and, and Rachel is quite interested in also. Um, But this is one that doesn't, in fact, get shown as much as the others. The other ones are more typical of the work that people know of Nibbleson. I have one in my collection in Context Gallery, which is one of the more architectural pieces. Um, Again, you know, the wooden forms put together. But this one is a figure, uh, you know, albeit an abstracted figure. But but it's totemic, Mm -hmm. and um, it's very vertical, and she's placed her work two bathers at the beginning of her gallery entering from this end, and when you stand in front of this Nevelson, you see her two bathers, which is a black and white, very vertical, I think it's eight feet tall mm-hmm. piece, and you really see the relationship her work has to Nevelson here, and it's just such a great view.
0: It's also interesting because we're also looking at the, uh, the two-sided piece trying of what it's called.
1: The two bathers.
0: Yeah, the two bathers. And I'm actually seeing that black shape almost as a silhouette. Absolutely. And so there's a really interesting thing that starts to happen where...
1: Absolutely. And that was a very deliberate decision on her part. Um, And it's just, it's a very poetic moment, but rooted in in formalism, you know, Um, in shape and color or, or blackness. The other really kind of cool view is when you come in off the escalators, And you walk in and you see the Louise Bourgeois um, great piece, Blind Leading the Blind, um, a wood structure of all these kind of legs. And two things happen. Um, You know, you kind of, the view, and this is very unusual. I've seen the piece installed. just one more, one other time at the Hirschhorn, but I've seen um, versions of it in so many different ways. And mm-hmm. it's not, uh, not typical to get this view initially, which is sort of through the legs, so right, to speak. Right. Like almost, it becomes like a, a corridor. Yeah. It really suggests space, casts a really cool shadow, and then you see it with the Philip Guston painting. Uh-huh. And the forms in the Philip Guston, right, these leg-like things, these kind of long, mm-hmm. um, spindly legs that, that fall over the brick wall. Yeah seem to be really reflected in the bourgeois, and it's just, it's really nice. And then the Twombly with the Bob Gober is just, again, like really wonderful juxtaposition. We've got um, three parts of an X, this really profound and um, right. great artwork by Robert Gober that's plaster and wood and, and hangs on the wall, and it's um, suggestive of a porcelain sink that's kind of gone awry in some way um and then we've got the the little twombly which is painted um called untitled roma it's from Mm -hmm. 1959 but it it has the same the same um white surface
0: yeah it's, it's it's been really interesting to look at collections in context because you do see a sensibility that their work is grounded in, or at least something that they're drawn to as artists.
1: Um, yeah, but what, what, tell me what comes to mind in terms of Rachel that you I, see
0: for some here. reason, I see a lot about, I see humor and I see gender uh-huh. in this, and it's weird because I don't usually look at these works as necessarily funny, but if I look at them, they're, they seem, um, there seems to be a sense of humor, but there also seems to be a sense of um,
1: There's gravity at the it's, same it's time.
0: It's gravity, but it's also kind of—it's—it's it's not sensitivity, but it's—it's it's, mm. there's a softness mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. makes sense. I can't explain that. Yeah. Or a, 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 a seriousness.
1: So Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we were thinking with the, with the Chamberlain and the yeah. Domier. It's so funny. Yeah. And at first, you you walk up and you just think, oh, that's so funny and clever. And yeah. of course, the issues of scale are really clever. And, Um, And it works
0: in terms of display and how display conveys media and narrative Yeah, But it's
1: also very serious. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not a lighthearted gesture. It's very much about these very big issues about how art operates.
0: And and I think that's an interesting, maybe an interesting thing for us to think about, which is that there is both humor and there's a kind of understanding of the seriousness, but it's not as if it's a giant crisis yeah it's almost like an acceptance or resignation that you just deal with it
1: well i think that humor i mean humor is an interesting thing because humor often is um i don't want to say masking but it it certainly does kind of placate something more serious Uh and so it can function in that way Uh, humor isn't always in a dismissive sense you know it doesn't isn't about um It's one way of tackling something. Well, I also
0: think it makes it easier to to tackle bigger, harder things that are just painful, and so that's kind of—I would say—just talking about this work when we first kind of approaching it, which is thinking about how it might reflect what the times are like and uncertainty. It is serious, but it is also a way of recognizing a certain amount of, I guess, fallibility or a certain amount of. ways to live with it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. Well then, in in, in in the context of this conversation about humor, then the Domi are a really interesting choice mm. for that that reason as well, because the satirical work yeah. of, of the 19th century is such an interesting history for her to to at least quote um, mm. here. because. It is, I mean, it really, satire is used as a way to talk about things that are extremely difficult. Um, and, it's a, and it's a social critique, oftentimes. It's a way of saying, you know, this world is um, problematic, that there are, in the case of these domain figures, you know, that there are hierarchies that I want to acknowledge, there's a class system, there's a, you know, a bourgeois society, there's a, there's a viewing public versus, you know, say, a working public or whatever. You might want to describe it as,
0: um, and I think that's really telling about her work. I think we, <clears throat> I think we started talking about those issues with her work, so they're mm-hmm. there and they're in the materials. But these materials are ones that are connected to to our own time period mm-hmm. and um, and to the ways that people are working now. So yeah, yeah. Let's
1: just end okay. by just at least mentioning the Anne Truitt, <laughs> which is right. such a beautiful sculpture. This is a beautiful sculpture, and. Um, you know, I, I, I think Rachel from the very beginning wanted this and <laughs> Oops, so I set off the alarm. <laughs> oh, one of
0: us dead. Well, it's just because we didn't um, take it out the door. Oops. <laughs> I guess we got
1: caught. So, unfortunately, you can't go up and hug it, but um, <laughs> it's a, just a gorgeous yeah. sculpture, and I know it was an early pick. Um, and I think, you know, Rachel really is interested in women artists, yeah. um, particularly of earlier generations, who have, you know, varying amounts of recognition but to really look very closely at their work and think about what kind of influence they've had, think about how their work might differ from their peers at the time. And, and true it's such a great um, minimalist who in fact has some very interesting uh, ways of working that are, are different than, say, Judd. Um, much more hand quality to them. You can see the brush strokes actually on the surface of this piece.
0: So that, I think that's what's what fascinating to me, is that she's picked these works that, um, except for the art feel very quiet in a way, uh-huh. way And that yeah. her work seems really extra yeah. So uh, Maybe the
1: Gusen was the way to like throw that off. <laughs> <Yeah>. um,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, when at first I didn't want any two-dimensional work. Oh, right. I had told the artist explicitly oh, just to just choose that. sculpture, because the whole intention was to really oh, do an okay. investigation of sculpture. but. Rachel wanted to look at these two-dimensional pieces, and I I realized that, of course, she uses Mm two-dimensional pieces in her sculpture. Um, In the duck's leg piece that we didn't talk about, there's a photograph. In Two Bathers, there's the reproduction of the Cezanne, and and then um, an image from from advertising. So Mm -hmm. the the juxtaposition between two-dimensional and three-dimensional is really an active part of her practice, so it made sense then for her to be able to do that in the gallery as well. Mm